Eshalak. Yeshuansaret. Amarlana en ant meshiaka. Bar. Elachachai.
On Friday night, we will certainly dig a little deeper even into um, what happened on this Good Friday. But today, um, as we look a little, I I want to, to start maybe in a different place today, out of what we just read, certainly. I want you to see that Matthew tells us this story. He tells us the events of Jesus' trial in such a way that definitely the Jewish audience to which he wrote, when they heard this story, would walk away saying, oh my goodness, there were so many things about that trial that were not right. And when we study it a little bit, and we understand a little bit of of Jewish history, and we understand how the process worked, today we can walk away going, oh my goodness, there is so much wrong about the trial of Jesus. I, I call it the injustices of Jesus' trial. I want you to see it for a little bit today. For example, the injustice regarding timing of Jesus' trial. All right? Now, my question, was Jesus' trial in the day or the night? From what you know, day or night, it's night, right? He goes to the garden. Judas betrays him. From that betrayal, everything starts to unfold. You get the picture. It's dark. It is at night. It's really the middle of the night. Some of the first steps of Jesus at Caiaphas' house before the, 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 the leaders, it happens probably somewhere around midnight. Well, just so happens Jewish law said that trials are to happen in the day. And we think, well, it's kind of a no-brainer, but, I mean, they literally had it. It, It's law. It's to happen in the day. It should happen sometime after the morning, what we would call worship, and it would happen before the last meal, the evening meal of the day. Now, again, it just seems like common sense, but there was also a reason for it. It made sure that the trials were public. It made sure that people had access to observe what was going on when someone was on trial. Well, there was not only a law that said the trial was to happen in the daytime, but there was also a Jewish law that said no trials were to happen on what we would call holidays. For the Jews, it was the feast days, right? God had given them multiple feasts. They were to celebrate remembering what he had done in their past. No trials were to happen on those days. Again, a part of that's common sense because what judge in his right mind wants to go to work on a holiday? But also people are moving, people are traveling, people are distracting, everything's going on. Listen to what I'm telling you this morning. Jesus' trial happens in the middle of the night and in the middle of the night of the Passover, both against Jewish law. Today, it would be a weird situation where you hear about someone getting arrested late on Christmas Eve, of whom there's actually no evidence against them, and the trial happens somewhere during the night before Christmas morning. Now, if that were to happen, and you heard about it, wouldn't there be something in you that just went, hmm, That seems a little strange. That seems a little suspicious. That's exactly what Matthew's writers would do, or readers would do when they heard this as Jewish people who understood the law of a trial. The other injustice that I want you to see today is what I call the injustice of due process. Due process. The Sanhedrin, kind of a weird name, but kind of a cool name, Sanhedrin, 
It, it, it was referring to the highest ranking Jewish officials. That's who we're dealing with here. It would be our equivalent thinking like a Supreme Court. That's kind of who these guys were. They were supposed to be impartial judges. They would listen to the cases, listen to the accusations, listen to the defense, and then they would weigh in on all of that in a fair manner. In Jesus' case, you ready for this? Who's bringing the charges? The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Now, anybody see a problem with that? Can you imagine being in a courtroom where the judge is introduced, comes in, sits in his chair, gets, gets the proceedings right underway, and then there comes a moment when the judge leaves his chair, walks down, leads the prosecution, and then walks back to his chair to decide the case. If that were your case and it was against you, I mean, anybody see a problem with that? Well, that's what's going on with Jesus. Now add to that that really no official charges are ever really brought against him. They, they keep bringing accusations, false witnesses, which we'll see in a minute, but really they just move the process through. A third injustice, let's talk about the witnesses. The witnesses. Jewish law said all witnesses had to agree on the particular details of a crime. So if a crime's committed, all the witnesses have to agree. These are the details of what's happened. If that, was, if that didn't happen, the case would be thrown out. And, get this, if the witnesses were caught lying about the accused, they then were to endure the punishment that the accused would have been given. That would put a little different twist on being a witness on the stand, even in our culture, wouldn't it? If you were caught lying about somebody, you end up with the full, full, right, judgment that they would have been dealt. In Jesus' trial, the Sanhedrin keep looking for witnesses. Luke tells us there were false witnesses. They kept bringing witnesses forward. Now, again, these guys are supposed to be the judges, but, but they're bringing the witnesses forward. They can't really find any true witnesses. They, they keep contradicting each other. And Jesus is never given an opportunity to bring counter witnesses. Because it's happening in the middle of the night. And the story Luke paints, the story Matthew paints, is that the Sanhedrin have pulled together and manipulated this crowd to push through what they want done before anybody else finds out. A fourth injustice is the conviction. A fourth injustice is the conviction. The law said that conviction was supposed to happen by, by a vote. It would be a vote of the Sanhedrin. And they had this really cool little, little detail where the youngest members of the Sanhedrin would vote first and the older, more prestigious members of the Sanhedrin would vote last. Now, why would they do that? So that the older ones couldn't pressure the younger. It's good. I mean, it makes sense. There's so much a part of Jewish law that you just go, that's really brilliant. Let the younger ones vote first 
so that the older ones can't pressure them. But the picture we get in Jesus' trial is there is no vote that is taken. No such vote really happens. It had to be unanimous according to Jewish law. In Jesus' trial, we know that there were people there like Nicodemus who did not agree. He did not agree. The conviction, it was, it was injustice. A fifth is the sentencing. Jewish law required that a sentence of death be carried out by stoning. That's what Jewish law said. If you're going to execute someone, it was by stoning. Now, stoning in that day meant you either pick up a rock and hurl it at the person until, until they're dead, or in some instances, stoning was they would put an individual at the bottom of a cliff, and then they would roll stones off the cliff. I don't know which one of those would be better. Neither, right? It's like, if you, I, don't, I don't know. Both of those would be horrible. But that's not even what happens here. If, if such a, a sentence was handed down, the ones who actually were to throw the stones were the people who accused. That's a whole other twist, to the, right? If you're going to be so strong that you believe somebody needs to die, you were required to be a part of that process. That judgment, if it was made according to Jewish law, also then was required to sit on the table for a few days. Three, to be exact. The reason it would sit on the table for a few days was to let the Sanhedrin truly consider, pray through a decision of taking someone's life. And it gave three more days to give the chance that if any other witnesses happen to be out there who really have evidence that that this person is, is innocent, it gives them time to come forward. After those three days, if no one else has come forward, then they would read the person's name aloud, read the crime aloud, the verdict, the sentence, the witnesses' names, and then they would call one more time for witnesses that might come forward who could help to exonerate the one who is condemned. And only then, if all of that played out, would there be a stoning. I mean, you can see, there is evidence of Jewish law that is just so smart. People, people are still using pieces of it around the world today in legal processes. There's one more injustice. It was Pilate's consent. Pilate was the Roman governor who knew that Jesus was innocent, but he wouldn't do anything about it. He knows that these Jewish leaders are manipulating him. And so, at first, he tries to come up with a solution. He, he goes along with what was a customary act of, of releasing one of the prisoners, right? And he, he offers, and yet they choose Barabbas. And so that's gone. Back in verse um, 24, we, we were told that Pilate, Pilate does all this because he's afraid of a riot. He's afraid of an uproar. The reason is because Pilate has made some really dumb decisions as the Roman governor. Right? He made some really dumb decisions that are now coming back to bite him. I mean, when he took office... As the Roman governor, Pilate decided he should do it making an impression. So he throws a huge parade, huge banners that are a part of the huge parade, and on those banners were the image of the Caesar. 
Tiberius, his boss, right? That's a good move, right? Put your boss's picture up all over the place, right? I mean, he's trying to set the, set the tone. The problem was he hung those banners everywhere, including the temple. Rut row. There's only one image that belongs in the temple. I mean, any other image, especially that of a Roman Caesar, the Jews were furious. So Pilate agreed to meet with them. He gathered them all in an amphitheater, said, we're going we're gonna to talk about this. He gets them in the amphitheater. He surrounds them with soldiers and threatened to kill them. At this point, the Jews call his bluff. Many of them just simply lay down and extend their necks, and Pilate caves in. But a short time later, Pilate's kneading again. He's trying to get this new aqueduct system in. I mean, come on, if you can get the water flowing, everybody's happy. He's trying to get it flowing, but he doesn't have enough money, and so Pilate extorts, extorts money from the temple treasury. Bad move. Bad move. Again, the Jews protest. Pilate sends soldiers, but this time he dresses the soldiers like normal citizens. And when a certain signal is given, the soldiers begin to beat many of those Jewish citizens, even to death. That's why the Jews hate Pilate. And that's why. Pilate's in trouble because he has also made Caesar mad. Caesar keeps getting this stuff across his desk going, what in the world is going on in Jerusalem? Why does Pilate keep stirring this stuff up? Pilate, if one more thing happens, your job is gone. All of that together gives us this picture. Pilate consents to the execution of Jesus, not because he believes Jesus is guilty, but to save his own backside. He was so convicted of Jesus' innocence that he does the washing of hands thing. It's always a very famous picture when you watch the story. It is interesting that that's actually a Jewish custom, not a Roman custom. And so when he does that in front of the Jews... He's saying, I know Jesus is innocent. The whole process, the whole trial, injustice. And, and we look at that and we go, how could that happen? Why would that allow, be allowed to happen? Why would it happen this way? I, I'm going to give you just two quick reasons. Here's the first one. It's really loud and clear. You ready? Jesus' trial demonstrates that his death was not due to his own sin. That's why it happened that way. Because they couldn't pin him on anything that he had actually done. There was nothing wrong that they could actually accuse him of. We go through all of this injustice, all of this craziness, all of this secrecy, all of this middle of the night, all of this manipulation because Jesus 
trial demonstrates that his death was not due to his own sin. He is dying because of somebody else's sin. He is dying for my sin. This is my trial. He is dying for your sin. This is your trial. This is us. Second reason is when you look at this story, isn't it true that Jesus' trial identifies with all who experience injustice? I mean, anybody who's ever been through betrayal, anybody who's ever been through being mistreated, been overlooked, been abused, been, been in, in some way you have experienced injustice, you read this story and you go, wait a minute, Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what that's like to the perfect degree, and he stood with us in it. And the things that we celebrate today are promises that he makes, like one day he will redeem us from all that, and one day there will be no more mistreatment, there will be no more abuse, there will be no more betrayal. That will be gone. His trial was not because he had done anything wrong. His trial was because I had done something wrong, and you had done something wrong, and the only way to save me was for him to walk through it in my place. This is us. This is our story. And the picture of a God who loves in almost an indescribable way. So, I want us to see, just as we kind of wrap up this, this series, if you will, there are some people at this trial that in a way represent, I think, probably a lot of us here today. There are people at this trial that, that, that represent all of us, uh, I'm going to say one of four. Let me give you the examples. Here's what I'm talking about. Four types of people exposed by Jesus' trial. The first one is the Sanhedrin. And when I think about the Sanhedrin, we're talking about they represent people who are threatened. And what I mean by threatened is we are, we are told in the story that the Sanhedrin do what they do to Jesus out of their own self-interest. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. The Sanhedrin hated Jesus because they were envious of his popularity and his authority. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the one to which the people looked to. But the more Jesus taught and the more that he loved, the more that he healed, the more that they saw him move, they listened to his remarkable words, the more people were drawn to him and the more he pointed out their hypocrisy. Talking about the leaders. His presence meant they couldn't have it their way, and so they got rid of him. Now, we look at that story and we go, whew, I would never do that. I would never do that. There's no way I would do that. But I want us to think for just a minute, to try to be at least honest for just a minute, that I'm convinced maybe we say we would never do that because at least for some of us, we've never actually been pushed to the point where we really have to choose between Jesus and ourself. 
Now, here's the way this works. I can stand up here this morning, and I can say this to you. Jesus demands absolute control over your life. Jesus demands absolute control, absolute kingship over your life, right? And, and pe- people will shake their head, and in, inside people are going, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and so here's, here's what can happen. I, I can say that to you today. In a minute, it'll be over, and you can walk out those doors. If you want to be really nice, you could, like, pat me on the back and go, that was a nice talk, pastor, nice talk. And then if you want to, you don't have to think about it anymore. You don't have to think about it anymore this week. And when tomorrow rolls around, you don't have to think about who's in charge. You just be in charge. I can't force you to actually choose. But what if you did actually have to choose? Like, like what if you were actually pushed to the point that either Jesus is in control or you're in control and those cannot coexist which one would you choose? The Sanhedrin, they thought of themselves, they were, they were the good guys. I mean, they, they were the people that, that kept the rules, they kept the laws, but Jesus kept saying that they weren't. He kept saying that they weren't any better than anybody else. They looked like the ones who had it all together, and he's saying, no, you need forgiveness and you need salvation just like all the other criminals and prostitutes and everybody else in the empire. And so... They killed him. They killed him. So here's the question that I'm presenting today. In your life, who's on the throne and who's on the cross? That's the question. Who's on the throne and who's on the cross? Somebody's on the throne in that they control somebody's on the cross in that their, their perceived role is, is to be submissive to what the one on the throne wants. There's a cross, there's a throne. Who's on the cross, who's on the throne? If you're on the throne calling the shots, then you perceive that Jesus is on the, on, on the cross. If, you, if you're on the throne calling the shots, you think Jesus is on the cross. He's the one who, who is, he, he gets done what you want done, right? Maybe you come here today and it's like, this is, I need Jesus to do this and I need Jesus to do this and I'm calling the shots and he's on the cross. He, he, he served. But if Jesus is on the throne and you are taking up your cross daily to follow him, that's a different life. Jesus on the throne calling the shots, and I am taking up my cross daily, saying, I'm with him. And wherever he says go, that's where I'm going. And whatever he says do, that's what I'm doing. I'm with him. The Bible says to ignore the call of Jesus to be the king of our lives, it is to put him on a cross. Only one of two postures are possible. I am either surrendered to him or I rebel against him. I am either on my knees declaring him to be my king or I am shaking my fist in his face declaring crucify him. This group of people, the 
Sanhedrin. They are religious people. They are rule followers. They are good people. They just don't want Jesus to have control. They are rule followers. They just don't want to own their own desperate need for God's grace. I'm going to tell you there are some days that I stand up here and my heart wonders what the percentage would be like across a room like this. Who's on a throne and who's on a cross? The second people, the second group of people represented in the trial is represented by Pilate. And we're going to let them be the distracted. Pilate is the distracted guy. He's the one that knows that Jesus is innocent, but he's unwilling to act because there are other things that are more important to Pilate. What was more important to him? His job, which is kind of a big deal. His job. He, he wants to keep his job, right? But, but, but really, the, the question we got to ask is, is there anything, I mean anything, that compares to the decision that you make about what you do with Jesus. You, you know how sometimes there are things that happen to us that we think are bad, but then eventually there are other things that happen to us that are worse, and then we go, well, that wasn't that bad, right? Because we are people with first world problems, right? We are people with first world problems. You know what those are? Like first world problems? First world problems are no Wi-Fi, it's okay. I didn't say it actually didn't work. I'm just, it, right? The, the thought of no Wi-Fi, right? Isn't that frustrating, right? You go somewhere, I mean, you, you need the Wi-Fi to work, right? Those are first world problems. That's the kind of stuff that, that, that we talk about. Uh, first world problems are the electrical outlet is too far from the bed. Isn't that frustrating? Isn't that frustrating? You know what I'm talking about? Um, here are first world problems. I just kind of made a list for them this morning, for us today. Um, it's freezing outside and it is burning up in here. Those are first world problems, right? We do it all the time. Um, a chipped nail polish. That's first world problems. Blisters from new shoes. First world problems. Forgetting your gloves. First world problems. Forgetting your charger. First world problems. But how frustrating. The pool is crowded. First world problems, right? A toaster with no bagel setting. First world problems. All we have is leftovers. First world problems, right? They're out of your favorite food at your favorite restaurant. That is serious. The steak was tough. The steak was tough. You had to make three trips from your car to the kitchen to carry in all the groceries three trips. You get in the picture? I just don't know what I want for my birthday. Those are first world problems. Now, even people with first world problems understand that there are problems bigger than that, like losing your job. Some of you have been there, right? And suddenly that other stuff that we whine about all the time, first world problems, losing your job is a different level. But even losing your job takes on a different perspective if your marriage collapses. And even losing a job takes on a different perspective if that medical test actually comes back positive. 
right? Then it seems like losing your job wasn't quite as big a deal as it, as it was before. Here, here's the promise that I'm making you. A hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, the only thing, the only thing that is going to seem significant to you is where you stand in relation to Jesus. It's the only thing that's going to matter. Pilate represents the people who know the truth about Jesus, but they're just too distracted to make a decision about that now. I'll wait till I'm older. I'll wait till my career is a little more settled. I'll wait till we have kids. Listen to me. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Why would you gamble with your soul? Pilate doesn't reject Jesus outright. He just puts him off to the side, at least tries to, for a little more convenient time. Third group. Represented in this trial is Barabbas. What a wild story, right? Barabbas, the the criminal. I mean, is there a clearer picture of what this whole journey is about than Barabbas? I mean, this is a bad dude. He's He's a thief. He's a murderer. Everybody knows he's in prison because he's supposed to be. The Jews hated Barabbas. The Romans hated Barabbas. Everybody hated Barabbas until there was a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. His name is really interesting. Barabbas, so bar, means son of. Bar means son of. Abbas, what would you think? Father. We think about Abba, right? So son of father, son of man, son of a man. You're like, well, wow, that's interesting, right? That kind of describes everybody. The son of a man, the son of a father, that, that kind of describes everybody. I personally think that's why Barabbas is divinely placed in this story where he's placed with his name. Because like Barabbas, we are all rebels against the rules of our God. But there is one of perfect goodness who has died in our place and took the cross that was intended for us. One of the things I always remember growing up, reading Barabbas' story, is as a kid, I can remember always thinking, wonder, wonder like, what happened with Barabbas? Like, 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 after Jesus rose from the dead, did Barabbas go, like, find him? And, and was it like, thank you, Right? Something, what was it? I owe everything to you. It's like, what happened with Barabbas? And we are not told. We are not told. And I'm saying, maybe it's because Barabbas' story is given to us in the form of a question. For every man, for every woman, for for every person. What will you do? What will you do with this great news that someone who did not have to die, but the only one qualified to die in your place has done so? What will you do? Will you fall on your knees in gratitude and praise? Or will you pass on casually ignoring? We don't know what Barabbas did, and maybe it's because it's the question for every one of us, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? There is one final person 
in this story that we talked about him a lot in week one, but we haven't talked about him today. He is Judas. Judas is what I call the despairing. The despairing. And we are almost done here, but I really want you to hear what I'm about to say. Why is Judas' story placed right in the middle of all this? Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's like a few verses, and Jude, it's like right in the middle of all this trial stuff. And, and, and maybe it's to show us the true picture of what, what every person, what, what, what happened. I mean, every person who rejects Jesus, what are they really doing to themselves? It is a self-destruction. But I think it's also to show us how incredibly unnecessary this tragedy of Judah's suicide really is. It is unnecessarily tragic. When Judas realizes he's wrong, the story tells us he tries to go back and what? He he wants to give the money back, right? There there are no number of pieces of silver that are worth what he realizes he's done. He's, He's betrayed Jesus. He tries to take the money back. They say, what's that to us? He throws the money. And it's probably the case that Judas just cannot ever fathom a possibility of forgiveness. He cannot fathom that there is any hope left. And so he takes his own life. Listen to me. Judas was wrong. Judas was wrong. How do we know Judas was wrong? Because Peter also denied Jesus. More than once, multiple times, he denies Jesus. In fact, we saw it in week one in this story. This is us. This is our story. They, all those disciples deserted him. They all ran away. They all walked away. And listen to what the next words are about to be. They were all forgiven. All of them. But Judas has never been able to grasp that Jesus came to reclaim even those of us who appear to be the most hopeless of sinners. He doesn't understand that Jesus' death, as awful as it was, it was done for him to deliver him from the very sin that he has committed. He didn't understand that Jesus loved him so much that he would die for him. Please listen to me. Some of you, it is not hard for me to believe that there are some of you that I am talking to now, some I will talk to throughout this day, some who will hear my voice from this message in the future, that you may be in the same place and you truly feel in your heart that you have done so much damage and you have made so many mistakes that your life is over, God could never forgive you, that what you have done, who you have hurt, the consequences of it all, there could never, ever be a purpose for you with God and you sit here today in despair not knowing where to go nowhere to turn and perhaps like Judas you have fought this so long that I really am talking to someone who feels like you're at the edge of I am done please hear me Jesus never, ever gives up on you. Jesus 
never, ever gives up on you. And the truth is, his grace to forgive is greater than you have ever been able to imagine. And the truth is that his power to restore a life that is most broken by sin is beyond your wildest dreams. Believing the good news, the good news is that Jesus died for sin, that he arose from the dead. If you believe that, it is true. The truth is you are more sinful than you even think you are. But the part that changes everything is you are also more loved than you have ever dreamed. You are more loved than you have ever, ever dreamed. Judas couldn't perceive that, and so he took his own life. And in doing so, he removed himself from the only hope that was there for him. Judas felt hopeless, nowhere to run. But in three days, Jesus will walk out of the grave with the power to forgive and the power to restore and the power to make all things new. What if Judas would have just waited till then? Can you imagine the conversation that would happen between Judas and Peter? And Judas is saying, Peter, there's no hope for me, man. I have betrayed Jesus. I I did it for money. I betrayed Jesus. There's no coming back for me. And Peter says, oh, but there is. I betrayed him too. But he died for that. He is alive. He forgave me. And Judas... Jesus is looking for you, and he's not looking for you to condemn you. Judas, Jesus is looking for you to forgive you. Come on, that would have been the story. You know what? It is the story. It is the story. It is what Jesus is still doing in the lives of people even today. And I'm saying maybe this is your same situation. This is what you feel. It is not by accident that you are here today. We got people here who love you. We got people here who would love to talk to you. There are people here who would love to show you the same hope that they found. Hope that can put back together the most broken of lives. Hope that can shine light into the deepest, darkest pit of despair. It is no match for a Jesus who rises from the dead. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for all of us because we are all represented in this group today. We're going to sing a song today. And when we sing that song, it is one opportunity for you to respond. There are going to be some of us that are over here on this wall. Everybody's going to be standing. Everybody's going to be singing. And we do that because we don't, I 
I don't do it where we stand right here in the front where everybody parades before everybody. I do that on purpose. We do it on the side, so that it makes it a little more comfortable that whatever you might be wrestling with, it just makes it possible for a conversation to be had in a little more comfortable way. I'm telling you today, maybe it's not about suicide. Maybe you're just going through some struggle. Well, that's what we would be honored to help pray for you about. Maybe it's a need in your life. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's whatever. It's something of brokenness, and you need Jesus to help. I'm saying that's what, that's what we're here for. Nobody's going to ask you to say anything in front of this crowd. Nobody's going to parade you in front. That, that, that's not what we do. This is about you and Jesus and somebody who just personally can help point you toward him. But I'm also saying that it doesn't even have to be during this song, that when the song's done, we're still going to be over there. And maybe it's just afterwards that you want to stop by. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. God, it is amazing to me how making this walk, this journey, these last hours, it is heavy. There is a heaviness attached because of the sacrifice that has been made. There is a heaviness attached when we see ourselves in the story and we realize it's our sin. And yet, and yet there is also this most remarkable joy in this almost unbelievable peace. There, there is healing. God, there is hope. God, I'm asking today that in the middle of a most horrific scene, in the middle of despair, God, you would give us eyes that can see the greatest thing that can happen today is that we would surrender control to you. Believing that you love us. This story is the proof you love us. You weren't on trial for you. This was our sin. God, today, would you give us eyes that can see, give us a heart that can believe. God, I'm praying for some healing across this room. There are some folks who need to, to repent and turn back to you. God, because the wrong person's been on the throne. God, there are some folks who are distracted here today, and there, there are real hurts in, in our lives, but there is nothing that takes the place of knowing you and being loved by you. God, some of us need to repent today and turn back to see what is most important. God, some of us are in the middle of despair. Oh, God, today, give us eyes that can see the hope of the one who has loved us like nobody else has. Today, may we give you control. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. Let's stand. We will sing.